0: Are you looking for new books to read? Do you like finding a new special author? Are you tired of the same old books from the same old authors? Well then, welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where you can hear from fantastic new authors. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have worked hard to write great new books. Hear about their book and why you should check it out. So sit back and listen to today's Discovered Wordsmith. This is going to be chapter two. My husband feels that's... The, the chapter, and I'm not going to read the Trisha's transitions or the amusing anecdotes so, so that you get just get the, the book flow. to get those. Yes, you got to get the book. To <laughs> the, get there's those. a direct exactly. push for the book. <laughs> okay, so the title of chapter two is The Calling. And uh, it says, Back then, I didn't realize it, but my salvation story was rather extraordinary. It was even dramatic. I thought God was doing that kind of thing all the time, revealing Himself in dreams. Healing people, overtly telling people his word, it was all I knew. Due to the miraculous nature of my conversion, not in a church and with no one but God present, when I eventually read of the Apostle Paul struck blind by God on the road to Damascus, I completely identified with him. It was so consistent with God's initial involvement in my own life. Paul was separated from God by the legalism of his Jewish faith while believing he was actually serving him. Paul persecuted God's followers who believed in Jesus and was staunchly heading in the wrong direction. But in my experience, when God knows someone wants the right way and the truth to be made manifest in their life, he moves, big time. And just like me, Paul has dealt a major course correction. He was struck blind and unable to move when God called him to be his apostle to the Gentiles. Similarly, I realized I was weak and unable to do anything of value without God. I felt loved, happy, and humbled, but keenly aware of my own inadequacy as I'd finally come to the revelation that he's God and despite New Age claims, I'm not. But right then, when I felt as useless as blind Paul, God revealed His calling on my life. Really, God, this is how You work. I'm completely incompetent. I know nothing. But what I did know was He alone was the author and creator of all these supernatural incidences in my life. So, regardless of the pushback from people, and there were those who thought I'd lost my mind, I did everything possible to cooperate with His plans. I knew I could do nothing, but He could do anything. Then I there's a scripture from John. 15.5. 15.5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. God had called me out of, it, out of my ignorant darkness and into his marvelous light, and he was about to fast-track plans that could make my life quite exciting and venturesome. I was ready and willing to play right into his hand, but first he had to get Dave on board with this heaven-sent bullet train before it left the station. skip the tangent. Now that we were saved, baptized, and ready for action, God didn't pause a beat. Wait a second. Yeah. So the tangent is about Dave getting saved. God didn't pause a beat in his expansive plans for our lives. Just weeks after our baptism and in his typical spectacular fashion, God called us to adoption. He revealed his plans for our family through vivid dreams that involved adopting kids. To me, the dreams felt normal because I'd started my Christian life having been literally wakened by God. I hadn't put him into any religious box he needed to extricate himself from before I'd pay attention. I didn't have any theological blockades to tear down in order for him to communicate with me. He had my full attention, and I knew it was him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. John ten twenty seven. I love God's word and am committed to his church. However, spiritual experiences can be hard for some people, so I kept a lot of these occurrences to myself, my husband, and a few close friends whom I knew were prayerful believers. After my salvation, I learned that people who weren't ready to hear about God and his will weren't ready to hear from him either. But through several prophetic dreams, God laid down the foundation for a work he had planned from the beginning of my life, our marriage, probably even the beginning of time. Initially, I didn't know the dreams had to do with adoption, but they were centered on a baby girl named Danielle, and she was clearly our daughter. She was African-American, had one arm, and was a tiny, darling, cheerful little girl. She was of different ages in the dreams, but always the same sweet child, and it was obvious she was our daughter. I couldn't recall the actual events in the dreams, but I awoke with the conviction that the little girl was ours. After the third dream, I woke on a Sunday morning and, as usual, excitedly told Dave about it. At that time, we were out of town on a business trip and had planned to go to the Episcopal Church by our hotel in Naples, Florida. Sunday morning church had become our usual family pattern. We walked into the very full church, sandwiched into a pew with a number of other parishioners and partook in the typical Episcopalian pattern of worship to which we'd grown accustomed. Then we got to the Bible readings and it was all like my own mind expanded as God spoke and everyone else in the church just faded away. And Jesus took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That's Luke nine forty-eight. At the altar, the priest read matter-of-factly, unaware he was being used as an oracle of God. Back in the pew, I started to shake and weep uncontrollably from the very depths of my soul. God was calling us to receive this child, Danielle. The dreams were about adopting. Dave was frantically searching his mind for why I was in tears when I showed him the scripture and whispered, Danielle. I watched the reality dawn on his face and a smile spread across it. He put a comforting arm around me, pulled me close, and kissed my head. God had orchestrated the dreams, the trip, the scripture at the church, all of it. He was indeed now calling us to the life of adoption in a rather spectacular fashion, leaving no doubt that he was the author of our calling. A few days later, we went home with a keen sense of purpose, but had no idea how to move forward with it. Back in Ohio, we relayed the contents of the dreams to a young pastor friend at the church. Various components made it evident we were to seek a transracial special needs adoption. He went on to pray for clarity about how we were to move forward. The problem was that we couldn't just call an agency and make inquiries about the specificities of children in their care. It would go over like a lead balloon. Yes, hello. We were wondering if you have any African-American baby girls in your care with one arm. We prayed about it and boldly decided to just start trying to proceed in the process. After a lot of phone calls to local agencies, we even looked into international adoption as we couldn't determine Danielle's origin just from her appearance in The Dreams. We thought of Tijuana. I had worked on a a hunger project and that's in chapter one, but she knew, but she wasn't likely to be Mexican. She could be from the United States, but she could also be from an African nation, a Caribbean Island, or from any number of other countries. Another problem was that most of our agency inquiries were met with suspicion. Why would a couple with three healthy young children seek to adopt a child of color with special needs? Social workers were typically polite, but then told us to go home and enjoy our kids. Of course, I'd told no one the story about the Danielle dreams. It was the better part of wisdom, since I knew unbelievers would think I was a fool or plain crazy. They may have even sent us home and called children's services to, seek on, to, to check on our psychological fitness as parents. Shortly thereafter, I started to get a nudge from God to speak with a certain woman at our church who was a well-known busybody. I often avoided her to keep myself from hearing her gospel or becoming a party to her latest rumor. At first, I wondered if it was God, but he was persistent, like the line of scripture that woke me in the night. He was insistent, talk to her. So I resolved in my heart to speak with her at the next after-church coffee hour, the one place our lives intersected. As God intended, it came on the very next Sunday. I braced myself, took a deep breath, walked right up to her, and asked the open-ended question, so Joan, how are things with you? She told me a couple of anecdotes, thankfully none of it gossip-laden, and then she reciprocated the question. I took another deep breath and plunged in with what God had called Dave and I to do. At the end of my tale, not knowing how to proceed in this calling, she said, I don't know if you know this, but I'm on the county board of unwed mothers. I just smiled to God. He is so omniscient. He truly does know everything. Joan proceeded to say she knew the National Association of Black Social Workers. It's a real thing, I promise. was making it exceedingly difficult to, to place black children in white homes. But she also knew a particular social worker who chose to swim upstream against that particular current, and she promised to speak with her the next time their paths crossed. The next day, the social worker sat down next to Joan at a board luncheon. Our story was fresh in her mind, and she shared our desire to seek a transracial special needs adoption. The social worker gave Joan her business card, and she happily said she'd be expecting our call. When she arrived home from her luncheon, Joan called me, sounding all excited with her update. I quickly got off with a hearty thank you for her help and then prayed. I asked God to surround me with favor when I called the social worker. Quite eager, though nervous, I tremulously made the life-altering phone call. We spoke just a short time, but the social worker made her professional opinion plain. 85% of children in foster care are non-Caucasian, and 85% of adoptive families are Caucasian. Until more non-Caucasian adoptive families stepped forward, she would continue to place children of color Black, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, etc., in white homes rather than place them in long-term foster care. Would Black homes and families be best for Black kids? Of course. But the statistics just can't support seeking to achieve that end. I loved her big, wonderful, and wise social worker's heart from that very minute. She worked for a Catholic agency, and I was concerned that since we weren't Catholics, it might be a problem. It was not. We went through the usual arduous adoption process with mountains of paperwork and a thorough home study. Every corner of our lives was delved into by social workers, financial, psychological, educational, social, and family history. I even had doctors fill out extensive medical questionnaires for all five of us. After the reams of paperwork, we were accepted as a family and waiting for placement. As all adoptive families, we got to experience the crazy emotional roller coaster of having the phone ring and thinking we were getting a child placement, but then we were told a birth mom made a different family choice. The social worker assured me that the birth moms didn't always give cogent reasons for her decisions. One birth mom interviewed us, and we really hit it off, but the social worker later confided that she had chosen different parents for her child because she liked the woman's shoes. Excuse me? She what? And was convinced her child was going to be a snappy dresser. Choosing a mother and father for your child based on a pair of shoes was just far beyond my realm of comprehension, so I decided to stop trying to figure out what the birth mothers wanted. I left it in God's most capable hands. As he intended, just a few months later, faster than pregnancy, we brought home a bouncing baby boy named Zachariah. The agency felt we were the best choice for him because he wasn't a newborn but a 10-month-old baby and we'd already experienced early childhood with our three biological children. They knew we understood developmental needs better than a family who had yet to experience parenthood and babies. He was multiracial, black, white, and Native American, and the biological child of two unfortunate teenagers who grew up with no parental guidance whatsoever. They were from chaotic, troubled families where addiction and violence were the norm. It was was a difficult transition, see Trisha's tangent transition below. And we still did it slowly because Zachariah had been in the same foster home since birth and was quite attached to his foster parents. They absolutely loved him, but due to their middle age, they felt he wouldn't get the same childhood opportunities unless he had younger parents and siblings. The roughest part for me was that the foster parents were chain smokers. If they weren't actively smoking, a cigarette was poised in the ashtray, smoke twirling and ready for the next drag. I brought Zach home on his transition visits and gave him an immediate bath and changed his clothes. Consistent with his household situation, was he was having some breathing issues, especially when he had a cold. He was also very demanding. The baby wanted to be held by me all the time. He required lots of reassurance. If I needed a break or just a shower, he'd scream till he was given back to me. But our kids were great about it. They realized he was upset and hurting. We had intended to name him John Albert after our two grandfathers, but due to his age, we decided to keep the name his foster family had given him. He'd have one less adjustment during the massive household family changes. We finally made the permanent break from his first home when we noticed Zach started becoming confused at the end of his visit with us, especially when I tried to leave him back at the foster home. He was gradually forming a strong attachment to our family but still loved and lived with his foster family, which prompted the social worker to make the difficult call, and we made the break complete. It was so hard for the foster parents and their adult children, but the social worker said it was the best thing for Zachariah. It took a while, but we finally settled into a new routine at the Campbells. Now a family of six. But even after we had transitioned Zachariah, the sense something wasn't quite right reared its head again, so I did what I'd become accustomed to whenever I felt anxious or unsure and had that tremulous feeling. I went on my knees and prayed. God showed me that baby Danielle was still coming. Zachariah was a transracial special needs adoption, but he just represented by the child in the dreams. The actual child, Danielle, was still yet to come. My next concern was how I was to tell Dave about it. Our family plate was already very full, so I decided to just confess my convictions to him and told him I thought baby Danielle was still coming. He just smiled at me like a Cheshire cat and admitted he was in complete agreement. Dave also felt the Lord had given him the same sense. She was still yet to come into our family. We chose to keep this truth close to our hearts and trusted God to lead us to the next step he had done before. We had total faith in him. A few months later, when Zach was 13 months old, my friend Joy, a pastor's wife, called and told me that she'd had a dream we had a baby girl. I said, shut up. And then I proceeded to tell her that we thought Danielle was still out there, and she did exclaim, shut up. I said, no, I'm not kidding. She went on to argue with me about how busy we already were, stating that the kids were still so young, plus the expense of it all. But when God's involved, your financial situation's irrelevant. The Lord owns the cattle of a thousand hills. When God gives the vision for something, he also gives the provision for it as well. If he could part the Red Sea, lead a self-sufficient academic egghead like me to faith and heal my children, he would surely enable us to afford and care for five young children as well. So we asked what, that she remained discreet while keeping the whole situation in prayer. So Dave and I began to fast on a regular basis. We prayed and sought God's direction. We had no idea where our baby was, but we knew she was out there. About a month later in the spring, I was sad and wondering where Danielle was, and if she would look like the baby in my dream, and I needed hope and encouragement. It was at this point that the incredible God of details showed up again in an extraordinary way. It was 1993, in the year prior, God had inspired someone at Ashton Drake Doll Company to make a doll named Danielle. I happened upon her picture while in a doctor's waiting room. Nonchalantly thumbing through a magazine, I came upon a porcelain doll advertisement, but the picture was my my baby girl from my dream. There she was. The doll's name was Danielle. I felt guilty, but I carefully tore the page from the magazine and slipped it into the diaper bag wedged next to me in my seat. My baby. She was an African-American baby girl with one sock on, while holding the other one, and she looked exactly like the baby from my dream. This kind of coincidence is what I I like to call a seam-binding incident. God knows so many details, far more than we could ever imagine, let alone keep track of. He's the orchestrator and conductor of everything. The reason I call his detail incidents as seam-binding moments is due to a passage I found in the book of Exodus. God gives minute specifics about the priest's garments in his description. He includes seam binding on the neck of their robes, and as a seamstress, I knew this was to keep the weight of the garment from tearing and to make sure it's comfortable for the priest. God cares so much for each one of us, and he even cares if we're comfortable. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows our needs before we can even think to ask. God was aware I required some kind of visual encouragement to keep the faith while not knowing where our baby Danielle was or when she'd arrived. He graciously knew I'd need another faith lift in what I call the meantime between the promise and his fulfillment. Spring marched on, summer arrived, and we were scheduled to go on another business trip, this time to Sausalito, California. At that time, when Dave and I needed to go out of town, we had a young couple, Miss Nancy and Mr. John, who brought their older kids to our house to make life easier for all our small children. Our kids had their own toys and beds, plus they didn't have to pack up and move. This was the easiest thing we could hand, we could. Handle long term child care for four young children, ages one, three, five, and seven. Unfortunately, an emergency arose for Nancy and John, so they had to call off, and I could do nothing to replace them. They were irreplaceable. Finding care for four little ones on short notice was really impossible. Sadly, I bowed out of the trip that was to include California sunshine and an expedition to their wine regions, Sonoma and Napa Valley, but it was for a divine purpose, and God alone knew that at the time. During Dave's solo week away, the phone rang, and it was Joy, the same friend that had the baby girl dream a few months earlier. Joy was an inner-city nurse with a big heart for the underprivileged, and she was a wonderful physician. More precisely, she was a nurse practitioner, and for all intents and purposes, she also did the same things as the doctors. On the phone, she seemed quite manic and started to speak very fast, so I had to stop her and ask her to slow down and start over with whatever she was trying to tell me. She recounted to me that at that very minute, she had a young mom in her office and was doing checkups on her three stair-step children who were born just a year apart from each other. As she examined the youngest, the baby was seated on the mom's lap for comfort and security. During her routine exam, Joy brushed the mom's somewhat distended abdomen and she exclaimed, oh my gosh, you're pregnant again. The young mom said, it's not my baby. Joy was perplexed. Up to this point, it was a normal daily examination room conversation for Joy, which always included the discussions of the difficulties of poverty and single parenting. The young mother went on to explain her predicament, but uncharacteristically concluded her sad tale. She said she knew she needed to handle life better for her kids to have a decent future, so she needed to stop getting pregnant. She was in such dire straits, she confided that she often ran out of diapers before the end of the month and had to put her babies in double rubber pants. Whoa, she was desperate. When she asked Joy if she knew anyone who wanted a baby girl, as soon as she said baby girl. The whole dream from months before flooded forward in Joy's mind. She abruptly excused herself from the room, went out, and called me, the mom who happened to be home because she had been recently removed from her husband's business trip. Coincidence? Nope. During our phone call, Joy said the young mom was unfamiliar with how adoption worked and with all innocence was asking people she knew if they wanted a baby girl. She thought someone else could just take her home, their, her child home from the hospital and raise her as their own with no legal process at all. Additionally, Joy further explained that the mom was too poor to even afford a telephone. This was pre-cell phone days. And she wouldn't be able to get any contact with her after she left the office. It was a good thing I was home. I gave her a phone number for a private adoption agency I was familiar with. They had a toll-free 800 number for clients who were very needy and living on the brink of destitution. I told Joy that the mom could use the number any time so let the agency know that she'd call soon. They could help her with food, maternity clothes, and anything else she needed to be healthy during her pregnancy. This was why our child care fell through. It was all about Danielle. God was in control and on the move. Pumped with adrenaline, I excitedly called Dave in California and relayed the incredible story of all that had transpired with our friend Joy. I tried so hard to remember every small detail of the miraculous situation, but I'd made a hash of it the first time through. After I calmed my emotions a bit, I relayed each minute detail in the correct order. Then Dave and I prayed together and knew God would show his hand, and all we needed to do as his plan for our growing family continued to unfold. The next month had a lot of commotion as we prepared to bring another little one into the house. The private agency kept the baby from going into the system, but we had to pay the expenses. We knew from our previous adoption how hard it was to extricate a child if they were to go into the child welfare system, so we chose to keep her adoption private. We got a wonderful social worker, Anne, from the agency, and she was a Christian believer. It was much easier and more comfortable to have a caseworker with our same values. As part of the intake, the agency visited with the birth mom to check on her health and living situation. Anne told me she was a good mother as she did the best she could in a very difficult predicament since she was financially strapped. Her apartment was tattered and worn, but she said it was always kept clean. She took her kids to the free food programs and to the library for story times. She was aware that reading and education were as important as food. She did her best to parent her children. As Anne shared her experiences about her birth mom visit, I was able to reciprocate and told her all about the dreams and what God was doing in our family. It was liberating to have a free and open discussion with a social worker who was a Christian believer. She asked our plans for the baby's name because she was wondering about the close similarity with our oldest son named Daniel. Dave and I had discussed the baby's name and and how to honor the dream. Then we decided to use Danielle as her middle name. We prayed and came up with two names, Olive and Esther. Ultimately, we decided the combination of esther Danielle sounded best, plus she would have two strong biblical names voting well for her future. In addition to all the adoption paperwork, I began to use a hospital-grade breast pump to try to bring my milk in again. I had read in one of my adoption books that when a woman had already been a nursing mom, stimulation and demand could get the lactation system back up and running. Since we knew she'd be a newborn, we wanted her to have her best possible start in life, including nursing. It was worth a try. The pump was painful and arduous, but well worth the effort for our daughter's health. A short month later, the tiny baby was born full term and healthy. We were elated. When Anne called to tell me the news, she said she had previously been trying to get a hold of me for days. Curious, I asked her, why? What's been going on? She proceeded to tell me that she'd found out the birth mother's middle name was DIT. I shouted into the phone. I was blown away. There goes my seam binding god again. Details. Anne asked if she could share with the birth mother, and I told her she absolutely could share the mom's, that mom and the baby's middle name were going to match hers. It would give such peace and confirmation she was doing the right thing for her baby. The agency took custody at birth and placed Esther Danielle in a foster situation to finish all the paperwork and tie up all the legal loose ends. During those few days of foster care, the birth mom insisted she didn't know the name of the birth father she was forcing us into a difficult situation because we needed that name for the adoption to proceed in a legal manner. We had to press her on the subject because it was necessary to do the legal diligent search for the birth father to fully release Esther for adoption. We knew based on her demeanor and responsibility as a mom that she was not the type to have no idea who the father of her child was, and we needed her to give us that name so the placement couldn't be overturned at a later date by the return of a putative father. With much anxiety, I told a social worker to inform her that she would lose her adoptive family if she didn't give his name. According to Ohio law, if a child is not able to remain with his or her parents, agencies are required to conduct a diligent search for identified relatives and notify them within 30 days of the child's removal so that they could be considered as a placement. It caused a great deal of anxiety, but in the end, she did give the father's name. Thank God. The adoption placement proceeded to completion. We had, a, we had the search done and nothing came of it. No birth of father was out there looking for this baby. Then we realized that God had shown us by the one-armed imagery in the three dreams. In, one, in each one, Esther Danielle only had a single left arm. Though in ra- reality, she was born with both limbs healthy. The arms represented what people naturally have two of, parents. She had only one biological parent, her mother, which meant only one arm. In the Bible and other ancient texts, the right arm is associated with the masculine side of life. So Danielle's single left arm represented her mother, but her missing right arm represented her biological father. And we could be at peace in the whole difficult situation because the one-arm dream meant God knew she would come to us without a father. But God blessed Esther with a great dad. Though so Dave had to first endure a lecture from his father about how we'd never get into a club, our whole family went to the agency to pick up our new baby daughter. Who was now six days old due to delays from the legal search. Dave's mom came in support of our decision despite her husband's protestations. My parents had to endorse our decision from afar as they were retired and still living in Maine. Our new baby daughter was impossibly tiny in our eyes and just five pounds compared to Nathan, our last newborn who weighed a whopping nine pounds, 11 ounces. She had us at hello and was a beautiful little fruition of God's big promise. In hindsight, I could see how God had started this particular adventure early in my life as he brought me along to receive the calling to have a multiracial family. When I grew up in my middle-class Caucasian Boston suburb, my family had been close friends with a multiracial one. My mother and a neighbor had gone to their home to welcome them the day they moved in from Detroit, Michigan. I recall some discussion by the adults in my life. They didn't want the new neighbors to feel unwelcome or different, but I didn't understand why. I was only 12. At the time, Boston was going through forced desegregation and busing. My policeman father was in full riot gear on a regular basis. It was a time of massive unrest around the subject of race in the late 1960s and early 70s. The father of this multiracial family was black and politically connected, active and involved in the fight for civil rights. He had met his blue-eyed, blonde, Caucasian wife, Amy, when they were volunteers in service to America. It's called Vista, a Domestic Peace Corps. Our family was super close, more like family than some of our biological family. We went to church together, had Christmas Eve together, and went on vacation together as well. Plus, I was one of the primary babysitters for the family. I was with their three boys on a regular basis at the park, at the store, all over town. You don't ever accept judgmental attitudes and people's scowled expressions, but I did learn to ignore them and remain happy, loving, and wise when I needed to handle those types of situations. Later, when I worked on the Hunger Project in Mexico, I had the same disposition of love and acceptance without regard to socioeconomic status, race, creed, or color. My purpose was given a foundation by God early in life, even before I decided to seek the truth about him. Look at your own life. Look for atypical things that have happened and see if God was doing something in your heart and mind, even from the earliest time in your life. Another thing to watch for when you seek your purpose are things that really bother you. What makes you upset when you see it on the news? What makes you really angry? What saddens you? These can give you clues to how God created you for a certain kind of purpose. For me, nothing made me angrier or sadder than child abuse and neglect. If I ever saw a story of want or harm on the news or in the paper, I felt the pain and would want to fix it. Similarly, prejudice could get my hackles to rise. That someone would be mean or abusive to someone based solely on their skin color or heritage was abhorrent to me. What matters is what's on the inside of a person, not the outside. God equips you with the demeanor and the experiences you need to fulfill his purpose in your life. We have had to endure hardships from ignorant people, but it is part of the calling. Unkind words and even judgmental body language from people are all part of the course. Our family was under construction to be an example to the world of what he wants, children valued and accepted regardless of race or disability. Though this part of the adoption adventure is difficult, it's meaningful and causes us to grow in patience love and forbearance I guess get the transition so we were thrilled to have esther danielle our daughter of the heavenly dreams alive healthy nursing well in our home but it was hectic five children eight years and younger were just neat they just need you for everything physical emotional social you name it he's causing me to grow and mature into the woman of god i need to be and to face years of continued adventures with him that's it nice that's, that's it. awesome uh, I skipped all the Trisha's transitions and the anecdotes in there, but I'll just sort of show you some pictures. So that's Amy and Etsy with my parents. And these are the boys I took care of when they were growing up. <laughs> so this picture's in the book. And let me show you a little Danielle. Wait a second. And there's me with baby. Cute. That was the day she came home. Wow. She's tiny. So Yeah, she was tiny. She's teeny tiny. Nice. But anyway, Great. so yeah, that's the story. I, I hope some people listen to the chapter and and that intrigues them to write or read your book, and yeah. maybe, and some people to consider transracial adoption because I know there's people that are uncomfortable with that. I know, I know, but you know what, too, I it's it's definitely a calling, like. You can't just go in there and go, "You know what this is a nice thing to do. I should do this because <laughs> you, 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 yeah. no. it, it because I can't tell you how many times I leaned back on what God had done previously when it was hard, when the going got tough, I go, "I know I heard what he said i, I or I know what he did and I I know that I know this is the right thing that we did or whatever, because apart from that, you, you start to question yourself, especially when the going gets tough. And it does. It just does. The tagline from my Facebook show is that it's the name of the group is A Dose of Hope with and Special Needs Kids. The tagline is parenting is the hardest job you'll ever love. And That's the bottom line. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe, sometime in the near future, it might be you.